Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, where in this season, we've been looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. But we're going to take a break for three episodes because we're getting close to Christmas, and I want to see if I can't get us thinking about Christmas and Christmas stories in a new way. I want to begin with a story uh, that you might not have heard. It goes like this. In the winter of 1865, an Episcopal priest named Phillips Brooks made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The American Civil War was now over, but he'd lost many friends on both sides of the conflicts. I've read that he was burned out and tired, and so his congregation gave him this trip to maybe restore his soul. And on Christmas Eve, he rode on horseback from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's only a few miles. And he saw it. He saw the fields where the shepherds kept the watch over their flocks by night. He saw the village under a night sky. And he was moved to write these words. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. This podcast episode is about Bethlehem. And when it comes to the world of Jesus, this is the story of a place that's older than Christmas, which is to say that it's older than 2,000 years. Rather, in this episode, we're going to begin 3,000 years ago with a Bethlehem story that connects some very surprising dots. This story actually begins away from Bethlehem in the land of Moab. Moab is a land and a people on the southeastern shore of the Jordan River and then also the Dead Sea. Moab is a place where a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi would move to because of a famine, and they would take their two sons with them. In time, these sons would take Moabite wives, and then in time, all three of the men would die, leaving Naomi with Moabite daughters. And this is not a good thing because Moab was not a good thing. Moab was a traditional enemy of the Hebrew people, and because the Moabites were uh, hostile to God's people as they wandered in the wilderness as they escaped Egypt, they received a special curse in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Now, I want to take a break here and talk about traditional enemies of the Hebrews. It's hard sometimes when we're reading the Hebrew scriptures to read all these harsh things that, that the Bible might say about your neighbors. It seems sort of unneighborly. We do know that they worshiped idols, and God said, Thou shalt have no other gods but me. But another way I want us to think about this is that God was very careful that the Hebrews would answer this question that we find again and again in Scripture, which I think is the one question the Bible will ask. Will you be different in the way that I ask you to be different? Will you be different in the way that I want you to be different? And how? what does different look like? How can we be different? Well, we we honor our father and our mother. We don't treat people as objects. We respect the dignity of every human being. We worship God alone. That kind of different. The problem with neighbors is they didn't share the same ethics. They didn't share the same values. A really good example of this, one we can get our minds around, is the story of King Ahab in the Hebrew Scriptures, the King Ahab that we call, who we call, wicked King Ahab. On paper, he really wasn't that wicked a king. He was a good soldier, good administrator. The nation of Israel was prosperous under Ahab. The problem with Ahab is that he married a foreign wife, a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. And there's a story where Ahab wanted a vineyard and Naboth, who owned the vineyard, wouldn't sell it to him. He couldn't buy it. And so Jezebel simply did what queens of the Bronze Age did. She had Naboth killed and they took the vineyard, which displeased God greatly. Now, remember, 
If you're living in Phoenicia in the Bronze Age and you're a king or a queen, you want something, you take it. That's their ethic. But Ahab was to be a Hebrew king. He was to be a king amongst God's people. He was supposed to be different. So that's the risk of Moab, right? And Naomi resolves to go back to Bethlehem. It's just Naomi and these two women who are now widowed. And it's perfectly reasonable to ask them to stay and take husbands in the land of the Moabites, which is where they're from anyway. But Naomi's got to go back home because she's got to eat. So she commands the daughters to the daughters-in-law to stay, and Orpah does, and it breaks her heart. And by the way, this is the story of the book of Ruth. And I've got to tell you, if you read Ruth, it reads a little like a Hallmark movie. There's nobody bad in this story. Everybody's nice. And it breaks Orpah's heart, but she obeys Naomi. But Ruth loves her mother-in-law with a reckless and a relentless love. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, this is what Ruth famously says. Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Just as an aside, this phrase, your people will be my people and your God, my God, is repeated 44 times throughout the Bible in the Hebrew scriptures and also in the New Testament from Genesis to Revelation, which means that here Ruth is even being a prophet. And God wants us to hear this message. We've got God and we've got each other, and that is enough for us to be different. Well, this is the story of the book of Ruth, and it's an important backdrop to the world of Jesus for at least two reasons. I like to say that to understand any story in the Hebrew Scriptures, you've got to understand two back stories, two stories that stand behind and interpret and inform the stories ahead of them. The first one is the Exodus, and we know the story. We've seen the movie. This is the flight of the Hebrews from Egypt. This is where God takes a nation of slaves and gives them land. This is where God will rescue people who have no hope uh, and, and, and removes them from a place that would hurt them, but not by their own power, but by the power of God. This also means that our communion words that we Christians read on Sunday are Passover words, which are by extension Exodus words, meaning that the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all on the cross for us would save us from sin and death. It is It too is an Exodus story. Okay, that's the first backstory. The second backstory is the exile. And we don't know a lot about this one. With Exodus, we have great, we have great details written about bondage in the land of Egypt. With exile, not much is written because some stories are just too sad to tell. But it goes like this. Some 600 years before Jesus' birth, the Babylonian army surrounded Jerusalem, just like the prophets warned they would. Some 600 years before Jesus' birth, the Babylonian army destroyed the temple, just like the prophets warned they would. Destroyed their homes, just like the prophets warned they would. Took them far away to a land where where they could mix them up, mix them up with other peoples and destroy their identity forever. But the Hebrews remained faithful in this way. They remained different in the way that the Bible asked them to be different. And by the waters of Babylon, they sat and they wept. But they also got busy because God called a prophet way out there, teaching them, first of all, that through Ezekiel, that God was not limited to the land of Judea or even the city of Jerusalem, that God could follow them wherever they go. And then they would get busy and they would write down stories that had been told for a thousand years. They would collate and they would organize and they would write the Bible. You could say with the exile, they lost the temple, but they got their religion. So Ruth was written down during the time of the exile to teach the Hebrews as they returned, as they rebuild, that God can be found everywhere 
even in the face of someone from Moab. Well, that's the first reason. The second reason why this is important in the world of Jesus is that Ruth would take her place in a much bigger story. Ruth would marry Boaz from Bethlehem as she returned with Naomi, and then Ruth in time would become the great-grandmother to King David. From henceforth, the kings of Judah would have a little Moab in them. Which brings us to Bethlehem in the Christmas story. Um, if you travel to Bethlehem today, it, it's a jarring experience. It's jarring for the birthplace of the Prince of Peace to be such a war-torn looking place. Uh, Bethlehem sits behind a security wall, which is a security arrangement between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government. Entry and exit are tightly controlled, and Bethlehem is very poor, and it's very dependent on our tourism, especially Christmas tourism. And sitting on the top of a hill over the fields where the shepherds watched over their flocks by night is the ancient church of the Nativity. It was built by late Romans at the same time as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem on the traditional site where Jesus was born to commemorate Luke chapter 2. I got to tell you, when you see Church of the Nativity, you're not going to see many churches any older than this. It was begun in the year 326, and it was built over a traditional site. Now, some of you know me well enough to know that I like to see where something really happened. I try my best to find something that Jesus really touched, to go to a place that you can really find in Scripture. But sometimes, like the birth of Jesus, you just got to pitch horseshoes and you got to hope it's close. But there is a clue to tell us that church in the nativity may be closer than we know. In the middle of the second century, an emperor named Hadrian built a shrine to Adonis, a, a pagan shrine, over the cave uh, where traditionally we think that Jesus might have been born, where the, where the stable, where the animals were kept, which means that Hadrian wanted to erase this Christian memory forever, which means that Hadrian knew that people had been telling stories within just a few generations, which means that this may, may be pretty darn close to Luke chapter 2. Let me read the story to you for just a second, and we'll, we'll return to Bethlehem. And I'm going to try to make the case that we mess these stories up with a lot of our Christmas sentimentality when it really is a simple little story and more direct than we give it credit. Let me read it just a few verses. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and to who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. We've learned something this fall about place names, how place names have meanings. We learned in a few episodes back about the place called Bethel, or Bethel means house of God. Bet is house. El is God. Bethel. Bethel is house of God. And this is where Jacob had a dream of angels uh, descending and ascending up and down a ladder. Bethlehem is a similar type name. Bet is house, and Lechem, Lechem is bread, Bethlehem. So this in this house of bread, Joseph and Mary return so that Joseph can pay his taxes and there's no room for them in the inn. I have a friend living in Bethlehem named Sana. She's a Palestinian Christian, and she always tells me Christmas stories. She's a guide over there, and she's really, really good at it. And her Christmas stories are so good, I will just give her money. I'll say, Sana, this is amazing. Here, have 
20 shekels. That's all I've got in my pocket. But this is crazy. And she told me a story about the word in that I can't get out of my head. So we, we all know about traditional Christmas pageants, right? We've all watched our children in these. We see these in church, and there's always a role for an innkeeper. And the innkeeper is usually in, you know, an ADD little boy that, that can't, it doesn't have the attention span to remember uh, Gabriel's speech or to be a star angel or to be a prophet. And, you know, honestly, the innkeeper is the best job because you've only got one line, which is no room. Right, no room. Even my kid used to do that. They knock on the door, and the innkeeper says, "No room," because there's always an inn. There was no room for them in the hotel because Bethlehem was full of people in town paying their taxes. At least that's the story that, the way we always tell it. In my home church, they tell a story of a of a little boy, sensitive child who was to play the innkeeper, and he's just had a big heart. And and anyway, they just weren't prepared for what happened next. Mary uh, knocks on the door in the Christmas pageant. And the little boy opens the door. No room, he says. And then Mary says, well, but it's cold outside and I'm expecting a child. No room, he says. Well, I know, but we've been riding all night across the desert. No room. I know, but I'm about to have my baby at any minute. To which, at this point, the child just had to come apart. And he said, I'm sorry. (laughs) Of course, you can have my room. Well, those are innkeeper stories when we look at the story this way. But my my friend Sana got me looking at this story in the original language. What, what we do with Christmas often comes from the King James version of the story, the no room for them in the inn. Uh, that, that's the story that Linus reads in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But when we look at the story in the original language, in the original Greek, we see that the word inn means literally guest room of the house. This turns our Christmas pageant version on its head. Mary and Joseph were not allowed in the guest room of Joseph's own family's house. Joseph had family. Joseph had someone who would have taken him in, but they arrived in town engaged with a baby carrying more than a whiff of scandal. Mary arrived amid sorrow from the very, very beginning. And my friend Sana, who's a devout Christian person, says that Mary knew the risk for us from day one. It's really heartbreaking to think of it this way, which brings me to another sauna story. If we if we take all the layers of our tradition of our traditions away, we'll find that the Christmas story is really very terse and really simple. And hey, I love Christmas. I love everything about it. I love everything we do. But sometimes you've just got to read the text. So I'm now going to continue with Luke chapter two in the eighth verse. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a child wrapped in bands for cloth. This will be a sign one way we can understand this story and to, to go to its deeper meaning is to understand the difference between the word sign and symbol. We have these little things in our neighborhood that we call stop signs, but they're really stop symbols because they can't make you stop. They can tell you to stop, but you can still roll through a stop sign and get a ticket. A sign is something that can affect what it symbolizes, like a nuclear submarine is a sign of destruction or a sign of defense. Signs make things happen, and we're told that the sign is a child wrapped in bands of cloth. Okay, here's a story according to my friend Sana. She said that in Bethlehem today, 
and, and they've always done it this way. Newborn babies lay loose under blankets. They don't wrap them up tight like we do, like little pea pods back in the hospital. They lay loose under blankets. Rather, a child wrapped in bands of cloths is a, is a baby wrapped in grave clothes. This baby was born to die. This baby was born to die for us. Which brings me back to that 3,000-year-old story and some dots that we might want to see that are connected in ways we never imagined that God is always on the, on the horizon watching over us and we can find surprises in every corner. Um, Bethlehem. In, the, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, uh, Bethlehem is, is mentioned in here in a genealogy. Um, Matthew chapter 1, what the gospel wants to do is it wants to retrace the genealogy of Jesus' name. Now, remember, it go, the genealogy goes from, from Abraham all the way to Joseph of Nazareth. And you need to remember that Jesus needed two parents to make this happen, needed Mary to give him life, but needed Joseph to give him a name, a name so that he would be legitimate and a name so that he would uh, fall in the, in the line of the prophecy of the, of the Judean line of kings. And so this genealogy goes from Abraham all the way to Joseph of Nazareth. And right in the middle of this genealogy has got a little Bethlehem in it because there sits Ruth. A Moabite woman with the courage to love and to follow Naomi, which means that the names of the kings of Judah would have a little Moabite in it. The name of Jesus has a little Moab in it as well. Well, let's keep looking at Christmas, friends. We'll see if we can uncover some more surprises. See you next time.